Hello again, everybody, and welcome back to What's Important Now, the podcast from the United States Border Patrol Academy. I want to talk a little bit about more than just the Border Patrol. I want to talk about our parent agency. We are actually part of U.S. Customs and Border Protection, which falls under the Department of Homeland Security. Now, CBP, as it's known, actually encompasses around 60,000 employees, and many of us are frontline operational personnel. But that doesn't just include the Border Patrol. There are actually other operational components that help do this job of keeping this country and its people safe from people on the outside bringing in bad things or people that intend to do us harm. The U.S. Border Patrol is responsible for the area between the ports of entry. You see us out on patrol every day in green and white vehicles, but there's also another piece of our border, and that is our ports of entry. And through our ports of entry, we have lawful trade and travel, which is a big part of our economy. But we also have people that try and sneak in through those ports of entry as well. Well, who's responsible for making sure those ports of entry are safe and secure? That is our Office of Field Operations. And so today, I have with me the Executive Director of the Field Operations Academy, my counterpart, the one that trains every CBP officer that's assigned to a port of entry, whether it be land, sea, or air. His name is Chris Holzer. Chris, thanks for being here. Chief, thanks a ton for having me. It's uh, been, a, been an outstanding visit. Great to finally make it out here after all this time and see what you and the team are doing. It's just outstanding. It's been a long time coming. And, been, I, and I know it's reciprocated because uh, I got the chance to go out to your academy also and, and see what that was about. And it's, a, it's an amazing operation, the, the sheer number of people that you put through every single year. Well, thank I, you. I'm jealous. <laughs> I want to tell you a little bit about uh, uh, Director Holzer and his career before we get started. So Director Holzer started with the U.S. Customs Service, and I'll talk about that in a second, in 2000. He started off in, in Chicago, Illinois, and he ultimately promoted to a supervisory CBP officer. Some of his accolades, he's been with the Office of Training Development several times. He was the acting assistant director for the Use of Force Training Branch. He also served as the deputy commander for CBP's Quick Reaction Force. He was the national commander for CBP's SRT team until uh, landing about three years ago, a little yes, over three years ago. Yep as the director and ultimately executive director yes, of the Field Operations Academy, which is a senior executive service assignment. It is. So you've had quite the illustrious career. Thank you. And so he started off at the Customs Service, not CBP, and I'm going to let him tell you why that is. Tell us a little bit about how you started and how it morphed into CBP for you. So, so yeah, so when I started back in 2000, uh, you had U.S. Customs Service and the, the Immigration and Naturalization Service, essentially for for some that remember, it was the white shirts and the blue shirts when you went to a port of entry, right? And the immigration folks typically focused on 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 admissibility of, of aliens and, and, and persons. The customs folks uh, typically uh, focused on on merchandise, goods, narcotics, all that stuff. And so uh, when 9-11 happened, obviously things changed substantially. And one of the things that came out of that, obviously, was the creation of the uh, Department of, of the Department of Home, Homeland uh, Security. And from there also was the creation of Customs and Border Protection which essentially merged all that stuff together. So what was the uh, Immigration Naturalization Service and the Customs Service merged essentially become one. And so those inspectors all became CBP officers. 
And so now they do uh, essentially, we used to, I think originally the, 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 the moniker they gave them was uh, super officers, is what mm-hmm. they called them in the very beginning, that. right? Where they could, they could do everything. They were, they were, they were essentially supposed to be experts in, in everything. And there were some trials and tribulations, of course, of, of, of the evolution of that, but we've come a long way. And so now when you go to a port of entry, it's essentially all blue shirts now. And, and, but yet they're doing all those same functions that always have existed. Uh, and that really was all more from a 9-11. And I remember that. I bet there's fewer and fewer people that remember what that was like, what you're talking about. But you would go to a port of entry, and you did. You had people in uniforms that had white shirts with an immigration badge, and, and I think it was black pants mm-hmm. or dark yeah. blue. And they did all the immigration inspections, stamping visas, checking yep. passports and everything. And then you had these guys who were in uniforms, much like what you're wearing today. They were blue. They were customs inspectors. Mm-hmm. And they were taking cars apart. They were looking yep. for narcotics and enforcing all custom, all manner of customs laws. Each of those very profound set of laws to enforce. Absolutely. And when they combined everybody together, I remember being on the sidelines in the Border Patrol looking and saying, I'm glad I don't have to do that because that's a <laughs> lot to have to remember <laughs> and digest. When you said super officers, yes, I know exactly what you were talking about. So many different laws to enforce at those ports of entry. Oh, yeah. It was funny, actually, one, one of our – graduates we've had today his father was here and is a chief in uh detroit ran into him just a few minutes ago and and we were talking about a detroit so back then i'd done some stints in a detroit so it was so disparaged that that your 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 border crossing lanes it was maybe i don't remember how many booths there were let's say a dozen the the, the last four or five all white shirts the other seven all blue shirts and you went inside secondary was its own thing for the white shirts secondary was its own thing for the blue shirts and and Obviously, they got along for the most mm-hmm. part, right? Had had their own issues, but it was very, it was completely completely uh, separate. They had their own chains of command. They never reported to the same people at anywhere in that in that in that chain. And it was really interesting. And see, that's a good demonstration of how siloed things were prior to nine eleven, and and one of the reasons why CBP was formed, and and we became what we became because we had to start working together because border security, national security, is very much a team effort. Absolutely. And so we refer to those as legacy agencies that were brought in and ultimately became what CBP is today. And I would be remiss if I, if I didn't mention our brothers in TAN, brothers and sisters in TAN, that's the Office of Air and Marine, Air and Marine Operations, mm-hmm. is the other operational component. The ones that you will see in uniform are basically one of those three, the U.S. Border Patrol, the Office of Field Operations, and Air and Marine Operations. Mm-hmm. And so here you are with us today. Talk a little bit about when 9-11 happened and they stood up the Department of Homeland Security and we became one CBP. How was that transitioning from just customs enforcement to now you had to take on the immigration aspect? What was that change like? It was it was challenging for certain. Um, you know, a lot on at that time on the immigration side felt it was a hostile takeover by customs, <laughs> and and some acted like that, right? Yeah. Obviously, others played 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 team ball, as, you know, as well. Just like anything else, you can have your 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 disagreements and and, and whatnot. But but it was it was really challenging. I, I often say, you know, so you going back that was. 2003 is when it was created, March 2003. So, so you know, we're on, we're on uh, over 18 years. I think for a long time we didn't do very well. Uh, I think now in the last five or 10 years, though, we've really come a long way. And it goes back to what you're talking about with the, with the partnerships and relationships and, and people realizing that, man, if we actually just work together and, and instead of trying to silo and say, this is mine, you stay away. And I think across the government we've done that. That's probably the biggest thing. But, but again, I really think that to me where I've seen it in the last five, five or 10 years or so, We've really done that. So now we've actually evolved where the capabilities are just incredible. A CBP, but bigger, broader government-wise because we work together with all of our other partners within the department, the Department of Justice, and, and everybody else. So it's come a long way. It's been a, been a long time, but... <laughs> it has. But it's a generational change. Mm-hmm. It's not something that was expected to happen overnight. 
but to kind of set the set the stage for where we came from, we were completely different departments. You know, Absolutely. I I was over with uh, INS under Border Patrol under the Department of Justice, right. Department of Treasury mm-hmm. from U.S. Customs, an entirely different skill set, an entirely different way of doing business, an entirely different department, an entirely different culture, and literally from one day to the next, we were thrown together. Right. I think it's natural to see that it was going to take some uh, some speed bumps along the way and some sure. uh, some trials and tribulations, but but look at what we've become today, and look how massive CBP is, and what how critical our mission is, specifically at the ports of entry. And a lot of people don't know this, but CBP does more than just enforce laws at our border; they also facilitate lawful trade and travel. A huge chunk of what you do at the ports of entry deals with our economic prosperity as a country. Absolutely, uh, and, and you're right. It's one of those things, in fact, it's one of our, our, our uh, pri- priorities for, for the Office of, of, of Field Operations, but it's one that, I don't want to say people tend to overlook, but sometimes people, especially the officer ranks, you get focused on, on I want to find the bad guys, I want to find the bad stuff, but, but realistically not understanding how detrimental a disruption to that, to that economic system is, is huge. If our, borders, if our borders are shut down, if our borders don't run the way they're supposed to, and we don't, facilitate that lawful trade and travel. So, so it does make it a challenging job too, right? I always like to say it's, it's we're looking for a needle in a haystack, right? The, we're looking for the bad people and the bad things, but we got to juggle that mission of, 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 of facilitating that lawful trade and travel. It's hugely, hugely critical to, to this country. And I don't know if it's still true or not, but, uh, but at one time CBP was the second largest revenue generator. I believe that's still the case. Yeah, I believe that's still the case. Behind, of course, the uh, IRS, IRS, but exactly. uh, <laughs> I hope we're liked a little more than them. I, I, I would, I would hope. I think right so now. too. I, would hope. I think so too. So, you got to experience it from the blue side and coming over, and, and, and I got to experience it from the green side coming over, and, and we came together, and, and over time, we, we've taken down the silos, and we've actually seen CBP as an agency really start to take off, I think in large part because there's fewer and fewer people that remember what right. life was like prior right. to CBP. So that's what, I, that's what I mean by a generational change. But just for the fun of it, I want to go back to your custom service days. We were talking about this in my office a little bit ago. So your class, I asked you, well, what was your class number? And you said, didn't have one. That's not the way that it worked. What was it like for somebody that went through the academy for the U.S. Customs Service? So it was it was more of a collegial atmosphere. So it was, you know, I, I'd actually been not, not long out of college when I went through, so it was very reminiscent. Now, the, 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 uh, no degradation of the training. The training was solid, and, and you know, your, your defensive tactics was solid. Your, you know, your mat room stuff was solid. Your, your PT was solid. Your firearms was solid. But it was sort of your administration of it was much more of a, of a collegiate atmosphere versus a, a paramilitary type. You know, we didn't have any, any drill and ceremony or marching around campus or, or cadences, none of that. So you might have had some cadences, maybe if you did, did, did a PT team run or something like that. But otherwise, it was it was very much, uh, I don't want to even call it unregimented, but it was much like most other federal law enforcement uh, academies are. where Focused more on the academic than but, the than the customs and courtesies and drill and ceremony yes yeah i would say i would say more on the or less on the protocols and and, and more on just the actual training itself and so how did that kind of morph because i know that's not the case for you guys today you run a very tight ship over there at the uh, we the do and, and and uh that's thanks to the border patrol so uh <laughs> back in 2009 uh we had our first ever director of the field operations academy was a border patrol agent so uh kevin strong i'm sure you you uh, know you, well, you, yeah. you you know well <laughs> Uh, was asked to be the director of of the field operations academy, and and basically his you know his charge was was put some more discipline and put some more regimentation into it, and he sure did. So so you know coming here and seeing what you guys are doing today, it's obviously very reminiscent of what we do as as, as you saw. So 
come a long way. So back in 2009, that's, you know, uh, uh, Kevin Strong, his team got sort of the ball rolling and then we've run with it since then. And, and, you know, and, and uh, it's really changed. So, so now the, the, the discipline, the professionalism, all that stuff that we really can, can build in there and mold in there and shape is, is really come a long way. And I think it's done a lot for what our, our graduates now display whenever they leave. I, I'll, I'll even say that I think you've taken that and turbocharged it because when I was there and I got to uh, participate in one of your graduations, it's, there's a tremendous amount of esprit de corps and, and motivation there that uh, that only comes from an atmosphere like that. It so does. You guys have built off of it and just made it something well, special. Thanks. So what made you decide, okay, I'm going to go customs. I mean, you were, you were up there in the, the Chicago area. and No, actually, I was born and raised in Pittsburgh. I was in Pittsburgh. I'd... Uh... I was actually my senior year of college and, and uh, you know, was studying in uh, criminology. And so really just looking for jobs. I applied at a couple of police departments and uh, a vacancy came up. I don't remember what the heck, the, what the, heck the, the mechanism they even did back then was. I was back in about 98 or 99. So I don't remember how, we even, how they even announced those things or, or, or not, right? The internet was, yeah. barely, was barely a thing then. So yeah. I applied. The process was, was really long. And, uh, and it was funny because I actually got the offer for custom service on Tuesday and uh, an offer for the, for the Pittsburgh Police Department on Thursday. And so I'd already accepted the customs one, and I said, well, heck, I, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll just go with that. So I just said yes, the and, draw. And, yeah, and I said, you know, <laughs> had it been reversed, I don't know, man, I might be a, a, a Pittsburgh cop uh, right now. <laughs> but, uh, but just kind of, kind of interesting. And, and so uh, by the time everything played out, I was, uh, uh, maybe I was about 10 or, 10 or 12 months out of, out of college, and I and, uh, had a couple of jobs on the side, you know, and, and uh, so the timing's worked out well. It's a long process. It took me almost a year and a half or two years to get it. That's so crazy to hear because that, that's very true on the Border Patrol side as well. There's many of us that uh, we just stumbled upon the job. We yeah. just stumbled upon the Border Patrol itself, and it sounds like the same was true for you. You just saw the opening, thought it looked fun, and, and, and applied. Yep. I, Oklahoma, where I came yeah. from, and the same thing. I knew nothing about the Border Patrol, and I did. I saw, I saw it online for what— the dial-up modems would provide back in the, yeah, <laughs> back right. in the day, and I remember what you're talking about downloading the OF612. Mm-hmm. That was the uh, the form that we had to fill out, and you could either you know type it out or you could uh, write it out by hand and send it in. And I remember they had an expedited hiring process okay. back then, and uh, and because I was you know 20 years old and hadn't been outside of my hometown, my background took about 20 minutes, and so <laughs> <laughs> so. And so I, I got I got through relatively quickly, but I, I heard a lot of people that it, it took a couple of years to get through the process. Yeah, that was kind of standard. That was kind of yeah. standard. That took you know a good year and a half two years. Like, hey, I, want, I want to say I had applied in October and you did the May of the following year. Mm-hmm. So so a year and a half or so later, almost two years. And so I think that's important for people to hear that are applying or going through the process right now. Is there are a lot of steps, and it it does take time. So patience is key. Absolutely, it, it it absolutely skis, and sometimes people get get lucky, and like you're you're pointing, or the, sometimes the backgrounds can go, excuse me, a little quicker and whatnot. But but yeah, I think the standard these days, anywhere from heck six months to two years, and, and right, patience is definitely key. And I always tell people that uh, you know you, you go through one step, and then you're waiting on the next one. It's best just to put it out of your mind and not dwell on it because you'll drive yourself crazy. Absolutely. And then you get the next step, and you finish it, and you put it out of your mind, and just yep. keep on keeping on. But the important thing is. Don't quit the job that you have, and right. uh, to, in anticipation, wait until you actually have that offer. Yeah, right. Absolutely. So, for somebody that, uh, what type of person would be drawn to being a CBP officer? So, I think one of the uh, best thing I could say is having an, an an inquisitive mind, right? So, kind of mentioned, you know, find that needle in the haystack, right? We we talk to, or you know, you can call it interviewing if if you want, but we talk to more people than any 
government agency that, that I can imagine, any federal law enforcement agency that, that I could that I could even come up with. And and part of that is is we're we're trying to identify people's stories. And we're trying to find the holes in people's stories. We're trying to find the anomalies in people's stories to start to figure out, hey, maybe is, what is this, is this person doing something wrong? And now, if so, what? How do I start to pinpoint that? So having that that inquisitive mind is probably one of the best things I, I could say for a trait to someone to have to want to do this because it is it's finding a needle in a haystack. But uh, when you find that needle, it sure is fun. I would think dealing with people is having good people skills is important as well. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we tell people we we, we tell our officers. I mean. Uh, again, the majority of the people they're going to deal with are absolutely law-abiding, good people, and and they typically are the first person that someone sees when they enter this country, and and especially if that's a someone from a foreign country, they're the first impression they get of of our country, right? So we definitely want to make sure that that's a, that's a positive in, positive uh, imprint that's left on on those travelers, especially when you consider the majority of the folks that you deal with are good people. Vast majority, yeah, they're Vast coming majority. in traveling for pleasure, for business, and. Uh, yep. And so, yeah, we, we treat them with, with courtesy and respect always. And, and so you have to be able to ask those questions in a way that is not off-putting. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And, and even when you find the bad guy, you still put that on, on the trainees now. I don't care if they're arresting the, 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 the biggest bag they ever have. They still do it as a professional, right? And, and you still treat people with respect. Yep. I, I couldn't have said that better. So I want to switch to a topic real quick because I, I know all the, the, the folks in Border Patrol are going to find this interesting. We see the ranks on the colors on the epaulets, and it and, and we know what ours are. Right, but it doesn't directly translate. There's there's different names and different. So, let's talk. Let's go through the ranks okay. real quick. So so for somebody in the border patrol that is wearing the the two bars, the captain's bars, if they were in the military, that's our first line supervisor. I see first off, I see folks with epaulets that look like the warrant officer. What are they? So that is the uh, that's a journeyman officer. So okay. so that's a, so a journeyman officer GS twelve. So mm-hmm. once once you. Uh, Progress to a GS-12 as a journeyman. You 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 are the uh, journeyman bar we call it. Okay. So so um, and then uh, next from that would be a fir- first line a supervisor, and those are the gold cluster uh, oak leaf. Gold cluster. So for us, that would be a special operations supervisor, which right. is which is a form of second line supervisor okay. for us. Okay. okay. So then let's switch to the silver oak leaf. For us, would be a watch commander or okay. a deputy patrol agent in charge. All right. So for us, that would be a chief CBP officer. So uh, also a GS-13, mm-hmm. but a second line a supervisor. And so what do they do? What is So a chief, and that's changed a little bit because now we've implemented a watch commander uh, position mm-hmm. as well. So back in the field, I spent, I spent a pretty long stint as a, as a chief before I left the field. And, and so, for, for instance, in my, in my case, uh, I was in charge of passport control operations. So essentially the immigration side yep. of things, which was pretty fun because I <laughs> you didn't know what a passport was. I sure wasn't. I still remember when the, when the, when the assistant uh, port director called me and said, hey, I want you to do an assignment up in passport control. And I flipped Went away and picked it back. I said, "You sure? You sure, uh, uh, Larry? You want me?" And he said, "Absolutely." I said, "Well, I'm on it. Yeah. I'm in. I'm in." And uh, and it was a great experience. So, so that's typically they would have. You know, I would have had daily oversight of, of fifteen thousand people uh, traveling through the the our uh, port of entry. So, not necessarily a specific unit or group, or yes, not necessarily. Okay. Again, uh, one of my counterparts was in charge of our what we call our roving teams and our and our uh, our passenger analysis unit, kind of our our intel shop. Right. Some, so that was his. His role, right? And okay. so another one would be over baggage control, which again, back to your legacy customs functions. Uh, yeah. So kind of like the OIC for each respective larger group. Area or task. Because mm-hmm. or, for us, a watch commander would be over a unit or a shift at a station. And of course, the deputy patrol agent in charge would be the number two person at a station. So then moving on to the Eagles, which would be like a colonel mm-hmm. in, the, in the military, for us is either a patrol agent in charge of a station or an executive officer or an assistant chief patrol agent. Okay. 
And so that's where ours get a little confusing uh, because ours kind of align not just to position, but but also to grade. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, for instance, uh, uh, Oakleaf for us is across the board of GS-14. Okay. So GS-14, uh, first level would be out would be a watch commander. So the watch commanders now, again, if those have been implemented, are, are kind of kind of similar to, to, to your point. That might be someone that's over all that's going to be over all the chiefs, mm-hmm. uh, all maybe a, on, on a shift over that whole operation. Uh, depending on the size of the port, that uh, could be a port director. So some of our ports are run by GS-14s, obviously based on their size mm-hmm. and scope. Uh, others are GS-15s, and others are SESs. Mm-hmm. So uh, it just really varies on the size and scope and how that port is rated. But but a 14, so 14 for us could be a lot of different things. Could be an assistant port director if the port mm-hmm. director is GS-15, uh, or a watch commander. So at that point, it's based on grade. Yeah. Okay. Which right. does get kind of confusing. It always something is confusing. We do. You guys definitely, I think, do a little more streamlined of a job of of aligning it to the job versus the grade. job and grade, yeah. right? Ours is kind of tied to the grade first. So for us, somebody that's wearing the uh, the Eagles mm-hmm. it could be a 14 or a 15. Okay. And then somebody that's wearing the uh, the silver oak leaf, mostly 14s, but potentially could be a 13 okay. as well. And then from there, the the gold oak leaves and the, and the double bars are, are 13. Okay. And so then we move up to having one star on their collar. And in, in military parlance would be a brigadier general but for us that's either going to be a division chief at a sector it's going to be an associate chief at headquarters or it's going to be a deputy chief of a sector deputy chief patrol agent and that could either be a 15 or an ses okay so ours again goes back to first and Mm -hmm. foremost gonna be gs15 so any gs15 is going to wear the the uh, single star and again depending on the on the size if it's a if it's a larger a a medium-sized port i'll call it uh, it would be a uh uh, that'd be the port director. Uh, if it were a larger port where the port director was an SES, that would be one of your assistant uh, port directors. Or at a field office level, it could even be one of the assistant directors of the field operation over the whole region. Okay. And real quick before, in case there's anybody that's wondering, so when we're talking about the GS scale, that's the pay scale in the federal government, so the general schedule. And we're talking about all the way up to the 15 level, that's as high as it goes. And then you enter in what's called the senior executive service, which is above the GS, a GS pay scale. So when we're saying SES, that's what we're talking about. And then we're moving up to two stars, what you and I have. And so for us, that means a chief patrol agent of a sector or a chief of a directorate of okay. the headquarters. And that can be a 15. Usually it's a senior executive service member. So for us, the two stars would be exclusively to senior uh, a, um, executive service, which would be either, again, those larger ports, uh, director of field operations, which is over a field office, again, a larger region or in headquarters, uh, executive uh, director. Okay. And then we only have one three-star, which mm-hmm. is the deputy chief of the Border Patrol, and we only have one four-star, that is the chief, our B1. Same thing for us. So mm-hmm. we have the, the executive assistant commissioner is the four-star, and the deputy executive mm-hmm. assistant commissioner is the three-star. We only have one of each, and so they oversee collectively the 30,000 employees for, for, for field operations. And I know there's been some folks that may have seen other four-star Border Patrol agents out there, and, and for example, uh, acting deputy commissioner, mm-hmm. CBP Kari Huffman, he is an executive assistant commissioner over Enterprise Services. He still wears his uniform as a Border Patrol agent, and because he's at that level of the chief of the Border Patrol, he still wears uh, four stars. I know we've had some of those also uh, with OFO as well. We have. Uh, you know, the, the last uh, sitting deputy commissioner, uh, Mr. Perez, was, was also the same as, as both the deputy and but prior. He was a, another executive assistant commissioner in operations uh, support, and he, he did the same. He wore the blue uniform with uh, four stars. Okay. And then let's break down the, uh, the kind of the geographic areas for us. So for Border Patrol, we have, of course, the headquarters element, and we have 20 geographic sectors that divide up the country that each have a multitude of stations within them. And in addition to those 20 sectors, we have the Special Operations Group, and we have the Border Patrol Academy, 
all of those have a chief patrol agent commanding that report to the headquarters element in Washington, D.C. What's it like for? Uh, pretty similar. We have, a, for simplicity's sake, we have 18 field offices, which again are just like the sectors in, in a border patrol where they're over a region, a larger mm-hmm. region. And that varies again in size and scope and, and, and personnel. For instance, it's funny, kind of when you look at one of our maps for field offices, the, the Seattle field office covers like almost the entire northern border. Uh, and I forget how many employees they have. Let's just for argument's sake say it's 1,000 across the entire northern border. And you look at San Diego, which looks like a pen prick on the, on the map. And they've got about two thousand or more employees, but, but again, I don't I don't know the uh, the exact numbers these days, but, but yeah, the size and scope. So, so then within those uh, eighteen field offices, there's three hundred twenty eight ports of entry. So then, as you mentioned earlier, you know, land, air, or sea, uh, in those many different sizes, many different shapes, uh, many different places, so uh, all all over the country. So you could be a director of field operations and potentially have a land port, more than one mm-hmm. land port. You could have airports, you could have seaports. Absolutely. And I imagine those are very different to operate. Oh, completely. I mean, the, the you know the the core the core mission is all the same, right? But 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 what you're doing, I mean, you're going to go to a seaport. We have a, a, a super freighter coming in with thousands of of uh, containers that we've got to scan. You know, using various non-intrusive methods, using uh, uh, our uh, intelligence uh, capabilities versus a, a land border like San, uh, San, San Isidro that's got. Uh, they've actually added more lanes since last time I've been there, but you know, massive, right? Or or even some smaller places where, where our officers have to be more jacks of all trades, right? Mm-hmm. So it's it's uh, yeah, very diverse, very very diverse. So if a person worked at a sector that had both a, a land port and an airport, could they bounce between the two and work at? Uh, they're, they're all run differently, but yes, yeah. some 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 do. Some staff, you know, uh, both operations out of the same place. Sometimes, depending on how they're set up, they might have. Uh, you might bid for uh, this year. You're you're bidding for just the airport, and, and next year I might bid just for the land border. So it just all depends on on each individual sector, how they're, or, uh, field office, excuse me, how, how they're set up or how each port is set up. I'm trying to equate it to if you were assigned to a station that had checkpoint operations and line watch, you could get assigned yeah. either yeah. either or. But are the ports more like stations where if you're assigned to that airport, you're not going to go to this land port? Not necessarily for, for uh, on day-to-day, let's say, but that might be our bid. And, you know, each each year with our uh, how it works is you, you, you bid for your assignment, right? And, and mm-hmm. so typically based on uh, seniority. So it might be for this year. I might I might work at that particular airport, and uh, maybe next year I bid something different. I might work at that particular bo- border crossing. So a lot of diversity of uh, work. Oh, absolutely. No way to absolutely. get bored. Yeah. No, no, right, right. Always that's something I tell I tell I tell the trainees. I said, you know, uh, always go for something different. Always mm-hmm. go. Our, our our job is so diverse in the things that that we do. Right. If you if you're getting stale on something, you're just you're just not taking the time to go find something new. Well, and then much like us, you have canine. Mm-hmm. You have yep. intel. You have training, Absolutely. you have special operations, there's, you know, take your pick. And then you also have, oh, by the way, passenger, cargo, yeah. you, know, you name it. it. It's So a person can really just bounce around and, and basically not do the same thing one year to another until they're retired. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Especially when we're willing to actually move between region to region. My yeah. gosh, you could, you could do something different constantly. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Now, how, how frequently does a person move in OFO? Just whatever that's really up to, 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 to that particular person, right? You know, it's... Uh, uh, we always tell people, right? I tell people early, you know, obviously the, the more you're willing to move, the more opportunities you have, and the, whether that be to, to rise in the ranks, that's something that someone, someone, someone desires, or to your, to your point, just to get some some uh, diversity in what I do. But uh, you also can stay in the same port of entry your your entire term. And know? people do absolutely do. And that's what I tell them too. I said, don't you know? Always always look at what fits your situation, your family, your your life, your your desires. You know, a lot of people 
born and raised in one one area don't have any reason to leave there that's where the roots are and and uh, that's perfect for them others well and i'm sure you have them also we have people that uh, that are coming from the military mm -hmm. that have been bounced around like a basketball for you sure. know for their entire career and the last thing they want to do when they come uh, to us is continue to move around right. right and they can be the best board patrol agents we've ever had and stay in that same spot and be just fine i always say it's still one of the one of the best people i've ever worked with uh, she retired a couple of years ago uh, as a journeyman and and she uh all in the same port 30 after 33 30, 35 years uh one of the most impressed people I've, I've ever worked with she could have been the commissioner of cbp if she wanted to but that was her where, where it fit her life and fit her role and and, uh, and she was happy she was absolutely happy absolutely yeah. happy. just a great person great worker great everything awesome well i want to talk about your career a little bit so because you did some bouncing around how many how yeah. many moves have you made well, only officially, I guess, uh, I guess this last one would be my third. Um, but I also in there, and instead of moving, when I went from, from Harper's Ferry at our advanced training center to, to D.C., I, I elected not to move. Instead, I did a, a two-hour and some change commute each way um, every day. So I probably should have moved on that one. <laughs> but, uh, but I still want to call everybody's attention to the fact he said only three times. As if that's nothing major. Yeah. Most times when people have a career, they, they don't have to move really at all. Yeah. But with us, that's not the case. Right. So you did, though. You, you did your share of moves, and I want to highlight a couple of them. So when it talks about that you went to work for the Office of Training and Development the first time, because we're part of Office mm -hmm. of Training and Development right now under the academies, the, as the acting assistant director for the Use of Force Training Branch. What is that? So that was, that was a lot of fun. So that was, uh, in, well, in 2007, first, I went on a, on a detail, on, on a, a temporary assignment to Harpers Ferry in the Use of Force uh, Training Branch. So that's where we... Uh, in Harpers Ferry, we train all of our um, instructors for the field. So uh, in firearms and use of force, our defensive tactics. So the particular use of force branch was the uh, defensive tactics side. You know, so every officer and agent in the field has to do quarterly training in, 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 in use of force. And so what we did was we would bring the instructors in from all over the country and we train them. And what was really neat about it was, and, you know, I went there as early as 2007. Uh, that's where we trained Border Patrol, Air and Marine, and, and Office of Field Operations folks, one and the same. Every class was typically actually literally divided up by, we would do 24 people. Typically it was 10 to, ten slots went to Border Patrol, 10 went to Field Operations, and four went to, to Air and, and, and Marine. So, so when we talk about things merged and us doing stuff together, I was doing it before it was a cool thing to do, right? <laughs> well, and I want to I kind of distill that down to the layperson speak because that's a, that's a really monumental thing that you just talked about. So not only does every officer and agent have to train quarterly, which means four quarters in a year, Four times a year, they have to train and be proficient in all of their use of force. Mm -hmm. And every instructor, whether it be green, blue, or tan, is trained to the same standard to teach the exact same product. Absolutely. And, and in the field, in some places, they share the resources. Yeah. So if I'm at a, a particular border patrol station that maybe I'm thin in my um, in, in instructors, I may borrow some from field ops or, or from air and uh, marine, and they come and teach my, my border patrol agents mm -hmm. or vice versa. And all of us in uniform do that four times a year, every year, for the entirety of our career, no matter what we have on our collar or our shoulders, and no matter what our job is. Yep. And so it was a it was a pretty neat place. Like I said, that was in 2007, really early in the merge. I can't remember what year we actually started doing that, uh, what, what year was done. I think it was when the advanced training center opened, you know, 2005-ish or so. I can't remember the exact time frame. But, yeah, so it was, it was really early on that that was being done. And for those that don't know, so under the Office of Training and Development, so we have the academies, the basic training academies for the uniform uh, uniform components. We also have the advanced training facility that you're talking about in Harpers Ferry, mm -hmm. West Virginia, so that those of us that are already in uniform 
some of the advanced training for uh, for less lethal, uh, for firearms, mm-hmm. for leadership, you name it. That's where we go to get that training. Mm-hmm. So it's actually a, a very complex network of training that keeps our men and women proficient throughout the course of their career, no matter what they're doing. Absolutely. It's an amazing thing when you think about it, but for yeah. an, an agency, 60 plus thousand uh, people, it's necessary. It is. It is. So then the deputy commander of CBP's quick reaction force, tell us what the quick reaction force is and, and what that entails. What, what was the mission set? So the mission set was essentially to support headquarters in, in a uh, continu- continuity of operations uh, issue. Either have a, a threat to the capital region, to our facilities in the capital region, or, or something that nature where we literally had to close or, or uh, respond to something. And so since we were stationed just outside of the, of the capital region, about 60 miles or so, um, we happened to have a bunch of people on our staff that were that came from the OFO Special Response Team and both the Border Patrol, Border Patrol Tactical Unit, or BORTAC, and also the Border Patrol Search, Common Rescue, Rescue Team. Um, so somewhere in there, we'd, we'd made some connections with some of our counterparts and headquarters, and, and they saw the value in having this this uh, group of, of, of folks out just outside the just outside the Beltway, and uh, we formed we formed a team which was really the first, I think, still only truly integrated between the three different tactical units within a CBP. And, and, uh, mm-hmm. and so I got the, I was fortunate of spending a, uh, gosh, it was probably about a year or so as the uh, deputy commander of it. So it was a uh, mm-hmm. really, really uh, interesting, neat, neat thing to do. And that was a national level team. It was, it was. Yeah. And this is one of the aspects of CBP that, that I think makes us appealing to partner with other law enforcement agencies. In terms of size, we dwarf everybody. Now, there, there, there's, there's no, law enforcement organization that even comes close to you know, more than 60,000 yeah. uh, men and women. And so the manpower and the skill sets we can bring to bear to help any mission, that's why we're called upon. And you've seen us called upon in, in everything from uh, you know, riot response to hurricane response mm-hmm. to helping out in events of national significance like the Olympics in Salt Lake City right. in, in 2002. So that's why it's not uncommon to see CBP being leveraged by our partner law enforcement agencies because of those things that we bring to bear. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So now let's talk about the special response team because that's not only near and dear to your heart, but it's near and dear to my heart as well. Absolutely. So I've been a member of Fortac uh, and Borstar since, since 2001, and I know the skill set and the capabilities that that brings to bear, that both teams bring to bear to the U.S. Border Patrol. What does OFOSRT do for OFO? Well, first, I want to say I, I, I can only think of a, a, a few guys that I know of that, that can that can say they earn both of those tabs that you have. So that is uh, that is uh, uh, and and the ones that I can think of off the top of my head are, are are impressive folks. So that is something to be said. Well, I did it when I was too young to know any better. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, the special response team was was established in two thousand seven, and uh, at that time, our our leadership said that you know we were. We were relying on other on other support too much, and so essentially, long story short, they went to Bortac and said, "Make us our own team." And so, so a lot of your counterparts and your and your teammates essentially, you know, built a program modeled after the Border Patrol uh, selection and assessment course, and uh, and built us our, our own. So in 2007, built that for us and ran it exclusively. Uh, by the time I got to go through in 2009, I was class I was a, I was a member of class six. It was the sixth time it it uh, was run. Um, the attrition rate at that time was. Class five had zero graduates, uh, but the attrition rate at that time was probably in about the twenty percent range of those wow. that actually graduated. So twenty percent of those that showed up uh, actually graduated. We had uh, we were a little higher than that. We had uh, fifty nine people show up in our class and uh, nineteen that graduated. And so 
so 2009 by that point really young in fact in, in my particular class i think we only had one or two bortac cadre left the rest actually were, were guys that had graduated from some of the previous classes and so as time went on we took over sure. and, and, and ran it our, ourselves um, and then i was really fortunate in 2014 i was asked to serve as a national commander for that so so i got to i got to, to manage the, the the national program time was probably about 80 80 operators almost every field officer and i'm quite at every field office yet and uh, so it was really interesting so it was again so even that time in 2014 we were only seven years old uh, which, was, which was pretty massive i mean at that time Bortac was was nearly 30 years old uh so, so we learned a lot from them for certain yeah. well and, and so i want to make sure everybody is, is following with us here so when we say tactical unit i guess the closest thing we can equate it to is if you're familiar with what a swat team is so for a federal entity the uh, srt or Bortac for us, that's as close as we get to having a SWAT team. There's yep. very similar mission sets. And so for somebody that's going to be an operator with OFOSRT, what are the, the basic requirements to be able to qualify? So uh, well, physically-wise, the physical requirements are actually pretty pretty, pretty st uh, stringent. Pardon me. Um, we have a, a, a just your entry level to even just show up to the course is a, is a mile and a half in uh, 11 minutes. Uh, some changes recently. I think it's still 40 push-ups. And I think it's about forty-one or forty-two sit-ups in one minute. Mm -hmm. um, so, so pretty, pretty stringent. Like I, like I, like I tell all those that are interested. I said, unfortunately, that's got to be the easy part for you. I said because you want to prepare for that, so that's not something you have to. Well, worry yeah, about. and and I, I'm glad you brought that up because I had some folks with uh, with Sog and Bortac talk about and Borstar talk about the same things. And and I want to make clear to everybody that's listening, that's not what it takes to get on the team. Not at all. That's what it takes to qualify to try out. Absolutely. So. <laughs> You have to be able to do much better than that once you're there. And it's a selection course. So you're talking sleep deprivation. Absolutely. You're talking about being put out of your comfort zone. There's stress inoculations. Everything that goes into deciding if that person has what it takes to, to keep their cool, exercise, good sound judgment, operate in a team environment in very dire circumstances. Absolutely. And, you know, we we spent a lot of time in, in, the, in the four years I spent leading the team, we spent a lot of time going and spending a lot of time with experts. Uh, not just BORTAC, we've done that for years and we continue to do that, but we spent a lot of time with uh, Special Forces Assessment and uh, Selection in Fort in Fort Bragg. Uh, we spent a lot of time with the Air Force, uh, or, excuse me, SEERS, which are the uh, Survival, Evasion, ooh, I can't remember that, what, what it stands for, but again, one of the special, another Special Operations Wings. And part of those relationships was we looked at how to evaluate and assess people better. And, and to your point of, you know, it's a, it, like I always put it as, Candidates are being assessed every single minute of every single day. And that's how we evaluate them based on those core values and those characteristics that we're looking for for that special operator. So we really came a long way. It, 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 it you know, started in the early days as more of a, I don't want to call it a, a, a tough a tough guy course, right? If you could stick it out, but they all do. Yeah, they all do. And we, we realized that, that that wasn't the best way to do it. That's part of it, of course, right? But the other part of it is, is, is that assessment piece and, and the evaluation of those, those folks. We really came a long way. So I'm, I'm really proud of what the guys are, are doing now. They've carried on since. Since I've gone to, and they've made it even better, so it's it's pretty awesome. And so, what uh, what would be a typical mission for OFOSRT? So uh, one of the one of the big ones, obviously, at our at our land borders is is the, the port hardening and and, and, and uh, response to border violence. Uh, beyond that, we've we've evolved over the years. A lot of it has been working with with our other counterparts and other other agencies for that broader border security missions. Uh, and then a lot of the teams have actually gotten into sort of working their own uh their own really um, what i'll call different out-of-the-box missions where you know some were doing 
surveillance uh, operations of, of, of suspected border crossers conducting some, some different things. I know our guys in Buffalo had, had taken down some, some pretty cool uh, drug drug smuggling rings. Uh, just, again, kind of working outside the box, which is really cool. That sounds, that sounds like fun. I mean, I, I don't know why anybody wouldn't want to do that. Right. Yeah. So OFO is now a law enforcement entity in that it is covered the same as the Border Patrol, what we call 6C coverage. So that means you do get the special law enforcement retirement package when you come on board with OFO. We do. The only, the only difference is we don't officially have, it's not officially 6C. There's a couple of different uh, pieces or, or, or uh, laws that, that give us that same coverage. So ours is actually called the CBPO Enhanced uh, Retirement. Okay. The benefits are exactly the same, one and the same. Uh, it's the, you know, retire at 20 years and 50 years, or 50 years old or 25 years and any age. Any age. Uh, same thing, we get 1.7% on our retirement versus the 1% that, that a, a conventional GS employee gets. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's the exact same. So, yeah, that happened in 2008 mm-hmm. uh, is when that became effective. So, so us, well, I guess I'll say old-timers now, uh, we were all grandfathered in mm-hmm. to it. So uh, uh, I don't have a mandatory re- uh, retirement date. Uh, so now when you know when the new folks come in, they, they, they've got to mandatorily retire by 57. Uh, but us folks that were all in before 2008 could really go as long as we wanted, which is kind of interesting. I'm not saying well, I want to. No, but I mean, you don't have a mandatory retirement date, but you're able to retire a lot sooner and with much better benefits. A lot sooner. Yeah, I'll, I'll be able to retire uh, essentially six years sooner than I would have mm-hmm. uh, with about, uh, let's call it about 7 or 8% more on my uh, on, on my retirement than I would have had I had to stick around those extra six, uh, six years. So I, I, You're starting to see a lot of similarities and a lot of parity and a lot more blending uh, across the operational components within CVP. And it's been amazing to see that transformation really in less than 20 years what we've seen happen. Amazing to see what happens in the next 20, 40 years, long after you and I have already moved on to green pastures, hopefully. Right? Yeah, it will. I think, I think we started to see that what, what special skills are each of our folks have and realized, though, how those skills were actually needed on the other side, too. And you know, I saw that in, in some of your, your uh, training event, uh, 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 venues you have here where you know, some of your team was explaining to me how they actually, hey, we actually went to OFO and learned how to do this thing, and this is what we built, and this is what we're training all of our agents in now. It's, wow. That's impressive. That's impressive. Yeah. And it, when you break down those silos and you actually work together, you start to see the opportunities and, yep. and everybody is made better. And it's, that's been a great thing to see. And, and I, I did want to talk about that a little bit because now that we have been part of CVP and we've started to do joined and integrated operations and we've helped each other out across the board, you know, whether it be with the migrant surges and, uh, and the handling of that or, or even our targeted enforcement and how we, how we leverage each other to go after those networks and those uh, those those organizations that are responsible for the illicit traffic coming across, and it has been an amazing thing to see what we each bring to bear in terms of the the analysis and the intelligence that's gathered and everything. And I just I think that CBP probably has the market cornered when it comes to some of these areas, not just because of our size, but because of the skill set and the capabilities that we bring to bear. And we've only seen that since those silos came down. Yeah, that's exactly. And, and the opportunities we've, we've done now to expand. And to your to your point, yeah. What's the next twenty or forty years are going to bring? I think it's going to be pretty, pretty awesome stuff. I do too. I do too. Well, if a person wants to apply for the Office of Field Operations, talk a little bit how how they do that. So, uh, you know, typically in the the, the announcements are open pretty frequently. I'm not sure exactly the tempo, but but they'll be open on uh, USAJobs.gov, uh, and that's the starting point, right? And so so the process is is again has a lot of steps to it, as you mentioned mm-hmm. earlier. Uh, the first part is is going on that USA Jobs and filling out that application uh, questionnaire. Uh, I'm not sure the exact order these days, but typically after that, it's a written test you get scheduled for. Somewhere in there will be a structured interview, uh, a polygraph um, examination, 
uh, background investigation, medical screening, and, and, and some other stuff. So, so yeah, the step-by-step can be a lengthy process, uh, but uh, uh, we've gotten way more efficient at it over the years, and our, and our hiring pipeline runs runs pretty well uh, these days. We did, in fact, this year, we did a record number of trainees at 2,256. We did this past year. That came through your academy. It came through. It, it, it started yeah. not necessarily all graduated, of course. <laughs> we, we would love to see that, but, but uh, 2,256 showed up for the first day of class. And that's, so, same benefits. Same veterans preference, those mm-hmm. that, uh, that that qualify, and the uh, the same law enforcement coverage. Mm-hmm. So, and then you still have to go to an academy, yeah. your academy, and uh, very similar in structure to to ours. Different different mission sets mm-hmm. and whatnot, but uh, but it's really just take your pick. That's it. Do you want to do the border patrol job or do you want to do field operation job? Both are all on the front line, keeping this country safe. Yeah, I right. both work together to to. You know, again, we cover the ports of entry. You cover all the places in the in the uh, middle uh, between those, and and collectively, we 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 protect the front line. Yep. And it, you know, we were talking about this earlier because we're both standing on stage. Class eleven seventy graduated today, and so uh, Director Holzer was our special guest speaker. Thanks along again with for that. That was pretty awesome. We were glad to have you. And then Deputy Chief of Big Ben Sector Rogo was there also, and uh, just happened. I don't, I lost count. Maybe twelve people pinning badges. That was a lot. And so, and and all twelve of them were either Border Patrol agents or CBP officers. And so we had CBP officers pinning their children as Border Patrol agents. And I'm sure you have it vice versa at your academy as well. So you talk about that legacy, and it's starting not to matter, Mm -hmm. you know, which agency, which component you go to, it's all the same. Yeah, that's it actually is. It's it's pretty cool. And to your your point, I don't think we've ever had quite that many we had today. That was was pretty awesome. But, yeah, typically in a graduation, obviously we probably have, you know, two or three uh, 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 CBP officers and two or three uh, border patrol agents that are there. And you're right; they're, the border patrol agents are pinning their their newly trained uh, CBP officer children, or sometimes siblings, sometimes yeah. cousins, sometimes nephews or nieces, and it's pretty neat. And I, you know, use the the term children loosely because no mistake about <laughs> right, it, they've right, proven right. themselves and then some. But I do get it because it seems like they get younger and younger the more the more time goes on. And I think we're just getting older and older. Too, yeah, that too. That's part of it. <laughs> But it's a good thing to see. It's been really good. So you got the uh, the entire CBP population out there listening and, and, and uh, their families. Any words of wisdom you want to give to them about what we've been going through these past uh, 18 months, two years with the COVID environment? And it's been tough. It's been it's been tough all around, right? I think I think we're up to, I think the commissioner said the other day we lost our 53rd person to COVID. Uh, terrible, right? I mean, and, and these are people that have been essential to the, to the mission, right? We haven't been able to shut the borders down. Borders don't yeah. shut down, right? We, we, our folks have to be out there working throughout all this. We've had to be here training. You have mm-hmm. had to be training here. We've had to be training over in uh, Glencoe this whole time. Why? Because we got to fill the holes of, of the folks that retire or, or move on to other positions. And so, you know, we've had to, we've had to train. And it's been tough. It's been, you know, the trainees on both of our sides have been through a lot, right? They've been locked on base for a long periods of time by Fletzi and, and some other different things. And it's been tough. So, I mean, just the, and the stresses from, from just COVID itself, you know, we've been, we've had, uh, I think we're well over 300 cases of COVID we've had at just our academy. And I can say that we only had to send, I only had to send one person home because of COVID. And, and I'm really excited to say that he's just had a really rough go of things. But uh, I just got word today that he's he's healed up and might be clear oh, for good. full duty by the end of this month. And uh, we'll try to get him back in. And he only had a few weeks left of training to go. So well, that's great news. And I'll tell you what, one of the things that, uh, that, that I want to point out, and I'm sure you'll back me up on this. I saw the desire and the enthusiasm and the esprit de corps in our trainees just by watching what they went through to stick it out and graduate. We had folks, some of the classes were here for the better part of a year. For a lot of that time, they were locked down on this base and not allowed to leave. 
They were getting tested on a regular basis, wearing masks 24-7, it felt like. You know, restricted movements. They gutted it out, and they still finished, and they're out there today on patrol. That speaks volumes for their dedication. Just imagine that dedication being applied to this mission. Well, it is, and, and you know, I'll tell you, so, uh, and I don't even know how to even explain this still, but our, our attrition, or those that, that, that leave without graduating from the academy, essentially was cut in half during COVID, which is incredible, right? You would think, based on the environment, the things you just mentioned, you'd think it would be double, triple, quadruple what it would. It actually was cut in half. And that, again, goes back to the dedication of the men and women and, and what they've what they've gone through. And, and, and you know, we saw that, that teamwork element that we, that we both, you know, uh, garner so much in, in both of our of our sites, but the teamwork was was just incredible, and and and, and I hope I, I'm confident that they're all taking that back out to the field and, and, and taking that same attitude and that same uh, motivation. I've seen it time and time again. I know you have too, but sometimes in the worst tragedy and crisis, you also get to see the best of humanity, and uh, I think that's been the case here and continues to be the case as we continue to navigate this COVID pandemic and hopefully start to put it in the rear view, but. The mission continues. It doesn't matter what we do. It's out there each and every day. Uh, I'm proud to be a part of this, and I'm proud to call you and all your brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters as well. I wish you the best, Director Holter. I, I cannot thank you enough for coming out here and gracing us with your presence today and, <laughs> and talking to the men and women of Class 1170. Appreciate it. Chief, uh, the sentiment is exactly the same, and I, again, really appreciate the, the, the invite and being out here. It was great. It was outstanding. Great to be part of the graduation, doing the run with you guys. Uh, yesterday was pretty awesome. So thanks again. Thank you, sir. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that's going to do it for another episode of What's Important Now. You stay safe out there. Keep your heads up. Honor first.